Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. You know, isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to just slip into that mindset of in prayer, paying God lip service, not really thinking critically about what we are saying. You know, in the past, I have often talked about how prayer is conversation with God. Certainly, this is what the church teaches. And as such, we ought to put it into that context of a living relationship, of a living friendship. Imagine if you were sitting down with your beloved or a friend, and you were just speaking to them, but not really thinking about what you were saying, and not really uh, intending to say what you mean, would not your beloved, would not your friend know that you are not thinking about what you are saying? Well, my friends, when we pay God lip service and prayer, this is what we are doing. Should we not be thinking critically about what we are praying? Should not the words mean something? We have, again, hit the pause button here on Seeds of Truth on this special topic night, this Wednesday evening, so as to be enriched by the petitions we pray in the Our Father. This is the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. I mean, in the days before Christ, the Israelites would have longed to be able to ask God how to pray the way the disciples did, and to hear what the incarnate Son would have to say about prayer. Well, this is what we have in the Lord's Prayer. And when does He give it to us? Well, remember what we talked about last week. The Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, comes in the heart of His great Sermon on the Mount, that great sermon we read in Matthew's chapter 5 to 7. Okay, so with that, let us pick up where we left off. And remember, we are working through Dr. Hahn's book, Understanding Our Father, Biblical Reflections on the Lord's Prayer, alongside, of course, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Remember, uh, the last pillar, pillar four in the Catechism, is on prayer, and there is a real nice section on the Our Father, and it breaks down the meaning of the Word. So we will be using both texts, both resources. Okay, we are in the petition, Our Father who art in heaven. Okay, so down through the ages, you know, skeptics have asked whether praying to Our Father who art in heaven is really consistent with our belief that God is everywhere and that He dwells within us, huh? Well, yeah, God is everywhere on earth as He is in heaven. He is always present within us, and He lives within us when we are in the state of grace, free of mortal sin, right? Yet, all the while, Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father who art in heaven because He wants us to lift our sights from our earthly exile to our true home in heaven. 
one of the great church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, said it well. Jesus taught us to pray this way, not in order to limit God to the heavens, but rather to lift us up from earth and set us in the high places and in the dwellings above. God made us for himself. He made us for heaven. And as Scott Hahn says so beautifully, heaven is separated from us not by light years of space, but by our sins. Yet God himself created our place of exile, and it's a good place. Thus, it's easy for us to get comfortable in our earthly lives and to forget about our eternal destiny. One can easily think of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, huh? After a few years of hardship, they grow nostalgic for their years of slavery in Egypt, where at least their bellies were full. Do you ever think about that? We often say, oh God, only if you appear to me in this moment or in that moment or in this trial. And yet, what do we see in the narrative of salvation history, but God constantly appearing to his people, performing the supernatural, performing the miracle. And what happens? Well, they slip into that spirit of complacency, maybe that all-too-familiar place for many of us, and we begin to pine for the material good over the spiritual good. Brothers and sisters, be rest assured, Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, performed a great number of miracles. But what can we say about the great miracle of when the heart is transformed? There's lasting power, my friends, in our transformation in Christ. So it is very easy for us to think the same way the Israelites thought when they were longing for the good old days in Egypt when they were slaves. When earthly troubles close in on us, Heaven's promises might seem unreal or we could say remote. You see, my friends, when we fix our gaze on the near horizon, envious thoughts, resentments, and greedy impulses seem to make sense for all of us. After all, if we follow their enticing logic, maybe we can grab hold of the things we want right now. The remedy to this is what? but to set our sights on high to heaven, our promised home. So we are called to live in a state of grace. And that state always starts with that great invocation, our Father who art in heaven. That is where our state of glory begins. As Scott Hahn puts it, now here on earth, we are his temples. But then in the heavenly Jerusalem, he will be our temple. Now he lives in us, but then we will live in him. Though we are not home yet, God the Father is with us, and he has the power, my friends, to lead us through the desert and across the Jordan. Though we have a long journey ahead, he is always in our midst. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, we ought to be mindful of this very thing, that he is always in our midst, and that we need to start living with the end in mind. Amen to that. Okay, how about this petition, hallowed be thy name. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge God's name as what? Hallowed, huh? Matthew 6, 9, hallowed. That is as 
holy or sanctified. But what do we mean by this? What did Jesus intend to mean? Most people associate the word holy with things that are transcendent, holy other. This phrase, holy other, was coined by the famous 20th century scholar Rudolf Otto. The holy is something entirely different from what we experience in ordinary life. And the phrase, holy, 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 that we see in sacred scripture is what even the angels cry in the presence of a power and a mystery that inspires fear and awe. Some scholars suggest that when biblical authors invoke the name of the Lord rather than the person of the Lord, they are consciously avoiding any language that might suggest that very thing that God desires, intimacy. They point out, for example, that the psalmist says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, rather than just, Our help is in the Lord, huh? Here they believe that David is verbally distancing himself from a transcendent God by itself. As Scott Hahn notes, that idea is half true. God is transcendent. God is powerful. God is mysterious. God is fearsome. Our God is an awesome God, as the song goes, right? But when we speak of his name as hallowed, we are doing much more than expressing awe or stating a supernatural fact. Again, this is not the devotional counterpart to a scientist's evocation of billions and billions of light years. Our Lord's idea of holiness was almost opposite to this whole idea of holy other. While uh, the scholar Otto sees holiness measured in the awe or the fear felt by a believer, Jesus sees holiness and teaches holiness as something belonging to God from all eternity, before creation. And so before there was even a single angel or human being to be awestruck by the Almighty, we are made to see that God was holy. And it's not that Jesus considered God to be anything less than mysterious or powerful, but God's mystery and power were not what made him holy. You see, Holy is his name, that is, his essential identity, independent of whether we exist in order to sense his quote-unquote wonder or, or mystery or power. What made him holy, my friends, was not intended to distance him from us so much as to draw us near to him in intimacy. So we have to be sure that we understand this for what it is. Because if we hear that word holy, and we just categorize it as something aloof from our reality, then we, we miss the whole point of the incarnation, right? What else can we say? Well, it's interesting. The Hebrew word for holiness is kedushin, which also means what? Marriage. You see, when something is holy, it is consecrated, set apart from something else. In that sense, it is transcendent, yes, but it is set apart, not for isolation, but for a personal and interpersonal purpose, not for distance, but for intimacy. In the ancient world, this consecration was achieved by means of a covenant. And once again, a point we have made a great deal on this radio program. When you talk about a covenant, you are talking about more than just a contract, more than a treaty. 
a covenant in its biblical vision, created a family bond between persons or between nations. A wedding took the form of a covenant oath. So did the adoption of a child or or the naming of a newborn. You see, in the context of God, who is holy, all of these new family relationships brought with them certain privileges and duties. The parties of a, a covenant invoked God's name as they swore to fulfill their responsibilities. Should they fail, they accepted those most dire penalties because they had placed themselves under God's judgment. By entering into a covenant relationship, they were in effect calling down a blessing or a curse. And if they were faithful, they would receive what? God's blessing. If they were unfaithful, they drew down their own curse. God's name itself served as an oath. To invoke his name was to call upon him and place oneself under his judgment. The name of God is the power behind the covenant. The name of God then is his own covenant identity, his personal identity. It's what proves our personal relationship with him. When we call upon the name our father, God responds as what? A father. (laughs) And we receive his fatherly help. But again, we also can bring down his judgment. But that judgment is a blessing to those who avail themselves of his help. This, of course, is the great paradox that Romans 5.20 reminds us of, huh? Where sin arises, grace abounds all the more. Where there's death, there's life. Now, when Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, he shows us that the name of God itself is consecrated. It is holy. We are made to reverence it. Again, not in something that is distant, transcendent, aloof from our reality, but something that is concrete, tangible, palpable, personal, real. Hmm? God's name is intimacy. This is an astounding fact, even more astounding when we consider that God is awesome and transcendent. He is all these things. He is ours. He is our Father. Consider the following passage from Exodus. When God is establishing the terms of his covenant with Israel, this is Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, for those of you who always have your Bible handy, huh? Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In a manner of speaking, that seems like a paradoxical claim, huh? God first says that Israel is his possession. Then he goes on to say that all the world is his. So what then makes Israel so different? This is what Scott Hahn has to say. God was, however, expressing a special relationship with Israel, and he did so by using the word segola, which denoted something set apart, reserved for the use of a king. A king, after all, legally owns all the real estate in his kingdom, 
but the palace is set apart for his private use. He owns all the jewels in the realm, but the crown jewels are his special possession. So we recognize then that what? We are God's special possession, and God is ours. We are his children and not just his creatures. All creatures possess God as their beginning and end, but we possess him as children of the king, huh? children who live in the palace and are heirs to the throne. So in possessing God, we recognize that his name is holy, consecrated, set apart for intimate conversation within the family of God. What does 1 Timothy 3.15 say? The church is the household of God, the bulwark of truth. My dear friends, the church is the family of God. And every family that is to build itself up must always, anywhere and everywhere, have intimate conversation. Those conversations that we have all experienced, those situations in which I'm sure we have all experienced. What did the Virgin Mary say? In Luke 1, 49, holy is his name. Oh, there it is. Holy is his name. He's not like holiness. He is holiness. He's not holy merely in relation to human beings who hold him in awe. Holy is his name from all eternity. And in light of this, we invoke him with a proper name of what? Holy Spirit. As God's family on earth, we share in His holiness because we are called by His name and are children of His covenant, which we invoke whenever we say, Our Father. This is why, oh, by the way, (laughs) we must never, in the words of the commandment, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I'm very concerned about the ways in which we have lost our sense of the holy, and most especially the way we talk about God. Mea culpa for the many times that I have not held God's name in the highest esteem. Everywhere I turn, the holiness of God is being disparaged, demeaned in the worst way. Brothers and sisters, when we call upon the name of the Lord, We are reminding God of the special relationship that he has with us, huh? We do this not for his sake, but for our own. He, after all, as Scott Hahn reminds us, does not forget, but we do. (laughs) We do. When we call upon God's holy name, we must be prepared to approach him as our Father. When we speak of the name of the Lord, we're not getting less of God or putting a great distance between ourselves and him. No. The Lord has revealed his name so that we might call upon his power and draw closer to him in communion. That's the most awesome mystery we will ever know. Hmm. How about this petition, thy kingdom come? You know, if some people find it difficult to identify with God as Father because of their own troubled relationships with earthly fathers, how much more they must miss the relevance of God as king. If human fathers are a vanishing breed, certainly human monarchs are, we can say, practically extinct. You know, our country here in the United States of America 
is proud that its history began with the overthrow of a king, right? And that no sovereign has ever ruled our land since then. Many other countries in Europe have retained monarchs, but only as ceremonial figures with really little authority or power. As we grew up, most of us learned about the ancient ideal of kingship, but for the most part, only from fairy tales, right? I do think we are missing something here, and Scott Hahn highlights this. We're missing an idea that really beats at the heart of the gospel. For Jesus came for nothing if not to establish what? But a kingdom. What did he say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, and in other places as well? But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea of kingdom is obviously important to Jesus and to the sacred writers of the New Testament. In Matthew's gospel alone, there are almost 40 references to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the gospels, Jesus develops the idea mostly in parables, though sometimes he puts the matter quite plainly, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Yet, for us today, the meaning of even these seemingly simple statements can be elusive. And in order for us to understand what Jesus meant by kingdom, we need to understand what kingdom meant in his language and in his nation. The word kingdom had a concrete historical meaning for the people of Israel. Indeed, the 12 tribes of Israel considered themselves collectively to be what but the kingdom of God, right? For many centuries, from uh, the Exodus until roughly around 1000 BC, the tribes lived in the promised land, recognizing no king but Yahweh. That was, of course, the theory at least. The truth, however, <laughs> is that the people still had something of an inferiority complex, huh? and they wanted their nation to be like other nations, with the same symbols of, of worldly power. They wanted to have a king, a throne, a royal dynasty. In the book of Judges, for example, we see that the people clamored to crown the great warrior Gideon. But what was it that Gideon said to them? I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Still, the cry arose again in another generation. What do we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5? Appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. And what is most fascinating about the narrative of salvation history, and maybe we've missed this in our reading of sacred scripture, but God let them have their way. Huh? In the long run, he let them have their way. For the dynasty that would soon establish itself was from the line of who? But King David, who was a man after God's own heart. And from the line of David would come a king who would bring all the nations of the world under the kingship of God. What was it that God said to David? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And so David's house would reign not only universally, but everlastingly. That promise ultimately was the substance of God's covenant love with David. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established 
forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. And so the kingdom of God would be restored by a righteous descendant of David. And who was this righteous descendant? Well, we know who he was. The King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I mean, what were the first words of the New Testament? Did they not establish his royal pedigree? Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Many times, Jesus is addressed as son of David, even though most Jews consider David's line to have been extinct for centuries. So what are we made to see in all of this? Well, the evangelists are careful to depict our Lord's Davidic royalty, even from his earliest days. He is born in the city of King David. He is often shown with Mary, his mother, just as the ancient king of Israel always ruled, not with his wives, but beside his mother, the queen mother. Thus, the reign of God is not merely his governance over creation. God has always governed the universe. No, the kingdom of God refers rather to a specific historical reality, the reign that God established by covenant with David and which he renewed by Jesus Christ. So at the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth, has come to us. You see, my friends, his kingdom has entered the world. It is here. Yet it is not fully manifest, we can say. As Scott Hahn puts it, it is present invisibly and veiled sacramentally. And in that sense, it is like, again, Jesus himself, who possessed all the glory of God, though he revealed this glory through humble human flesh. Above all else, the kingdom of God is incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And as such, the kingdom of God also has this mystical component, this component that speaks to the interior life. If the kingdom of God comes to us sacramentally, then yes, it must speak to the interior life, the spiritual life, the life where we desire more of God. If the kingdom of God itself is going to expand, then our hearts must expand and they do so as we abide in the sacramental life of the church. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer, focusing in on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, The website is joeholcraft.org.